today I think I'd like to talk about the path, the way the Buddha laid it out. Maybe it's like a little bit of an overview, but even if we've been at this practice for a while, sometimes we, um, sometimes it can be helpful to consider the, the pieces um, and the way the Buddha talked about the path. So we can check in on what are the parts that are challenging right now in our practice uh, that we might want to give a bit more attention to. And of course, the, the attraction of the Buddha's teaching and the path comes from our experience in life. And, you know, most of us or many of us, we've been conditioned and trained, if you will, to, you know, work hard, um, you know, do, do as well as we can in school, get a good education, get a job, find a partner, you know, raise a family. Um, maybe some of us don't completely embrace all those pieces. <laughs> in the same way you know certainly but one way or another you know we have this kind of ideal of what human beings are supposed to be doing with their life and it's good and a lot of times we can really create a stable life with many good pieces in it and yet at some point we might find ourselves questioning um, is this really it? Because, of course, what happens after all of that? You know, you retire at some point, and and then what? Not not to say that it's retirement in and of itself. I, I've seen a lot of people retire and be happier than ever, <laughs> and and uh, really kind of pick up their real work, you know, of of whatever it is that is is important to them. And that's that's also good. And one thing to say for any of us who've been um, listening to the Buddha, reading the teachings, sometimes we can come away with the idea that there's something wrong with um, making a happy life and being happy with um, where we're at in it. And that's not the case. It's just that there's more. There's more to human life and human experience, but it's really, I had someone that comes to our sessions often. She's not here today, but no, she's looking at the suttas for quite a while and, and said, but I, I actually have a very happy life. You know, I have this nice place to live and, um, you know, a good family and, you know, almost feeling like there's something wrong with enjoying that. That's that's the message you can come away with sometimes. But that isn't the Buddha's point. He really emphasized being happy, being content, uh, and enjoying, even enjoying our, our resources. He talked about the value of having sufficient financial 
basis to be able to make yourself happy, make your family happy, be generous, um, and, um, you know, take care of people. And that there's nothing wrong with that. But when you talk to people about the, you know, what else is there? Because, you know, like, we're all pretty familiar with the phenomenon of midlife crisis or uh, if we um, are a bit prepared, maybe it's not a crisis, it's a midlife assessment. And we can, at any point in life, even at a young age, we can be thinking, well, is, is this really valuable? Does this last? Is this going to bring me happiness over time? You know, what is it really like to have happiness that isn't dependent on life going the way I want it to go? I mean, the way we want it to go is no aging, no sickness, no death. <laughs> and that's impossible. So what do we do? What do we do with those things? Every one of us, if we live long enough, is touched by those. And of course, you know, all of all of us who've been around these teachings a long time know this well enough. But the I almost said the devil's in the details. <laughs> That's not quite it. The um, the gems are in the details. And you know, how do we find those? How do we find what really reaches beyond the world's idea of success. And so when we look at how the Buddha taught, um, first of all, just to be clear, as most of you know, the Buddha didn't create the Dhamma that he taught, didn't create a system or a philosophy, he discovered it. It's already there, complete. It's always been there. It's always going to be there. The Dhamma is just the way things actually work. It's just there's a pretty significant component of that that's not always apparent to us because it's deeper then we allow our mind to go most of the time. And we can't arrive at the knowledge and understanding of that through mere study or reasoning, reflection. It's through letting go. So when someone would come to the Buddha, who is new to all of this, but very interested. And you know, how do we get interested? It's exactly like what I'm pointing at. It's like we get interested because we're realizing that even though we do all the things that we're told we should do, and we gain a certain level of success in our life, we're still not satisfied because the world is never gonna really satisfy us. So then when we're starting to become interested in what is this beyond the, the values or the requirements of the world? And when someone like that comes to the Buddha, he would talk to them in, in kind of in stages, or he would, he would start with talking about generosity. 
And some of you know this sequence because you see it in the suttas. He would talk about generosity and then he would talk about ethical conduct. And then he would talk about heaven. That's an interesting one. And then he would talk about the dangers of sense pleasures and the joys of renunciation. So there's a passage and I wanna read a little bit to you about this. This is a, a lay person named Upali who comes to the Buddha and there's, there's a, a whole story there, it's worth reading. It's in uh, Middle Length Discourses, number 56. But at the point where Upali is really ready to hear about the Dhamma, the Buddha talks to him in this order that I just listed. And we can look at why. So why does the Buddha start by talking about giving? Well, giving is one of the ways in which we transcend the world. It's one of the first, most available, most obvious and ubiquitous ways that we elevate our heart from mere experience of joy or happiness through sensual pleasures, through what comes our way, what's going the way we want it to go, you know, what's happening in the world to something that's much more selfless. And it's, it's a, a way that we can feel that spiritual energy and happiness that comes from something more elevated, more pure. Purity, in this sense, I'm using it as what comes from a mind that's not grasping, that's not selfish, that's not coming from the ego and me and mine. You know, because you know that when we give something to someone else and we really there's no strings attached at all, there's this pure feeling of happiness. But when we want something in return, it kind of ruins it. You know, it's like there's this grasping there. It's not at all the same. It doesn't have the same beautiful result on our own mind and our heart. So when the Buddha is talking about giving, it's such a natural first step. And, you know, we experience that in our life from the time we're small. I think, you know, we all may, maybe you have a memory or maybe many memories of giving to your parents or to friends or whatever, your pet, you know, the kindness that we show, the care that we give to someone, the gifts, you know, that are really coming from our own joy and happiness, and then what that feels like. And that's a good beginning training, you know, to know the difference between those, those two, um, you might say levels of what we do in order to get something back and what we do openly um, generous. So that that's a great first step. And then from there, the Buddha talks about our virtue and ethics. 
And we can also feel that, how it feels to not be hiding anything, how it feels to um, not do things that will hurt others. And those are also things that tend to hurt us, even when we don't realize it immediately. Over time, we can, if we pay attention to how it feels, it doesn't feel very good to tell even small lies or whatever. And, and so when the Buddha talked to people about ethical conduct, he made that clear. You know, there, there are those five precepts and how much more beautiful our life is and how much more peace we experience in our own minds and how much better the world is. And if you think about a world where everybody keeps those five precepts and, you know, it's, it would be amazing. Of course, that's not the world we live in and it's not going to become like that. So we have to make that oasis of safety and trust in our own relationships with ourself, with ourself being safe, with ourself in our ethical conduct and then with everyone in our life and within our family, within our homes and hopefully at work as much as possible. And, you know, so the, so the Buddha is laying this kind of path down for Upali and for other people that he talked with and for us. And then he talks about heaven. Now, that's a little trickier, I think, for us to imagine, like, what, what is he getting at there? Why is that in this list? What is it about heaven? Well, in other places in the suttas, we see the Buddha talk about the devas, which are the heavenly beings, and the way that they became heavenly beings. Like, what is what is it? like to live in a heaven realm what is it like to be a heavenly being you know it's it's you know he, the buddha talks about the virtues that are necessary the purity of mind in order to um, reappear in a heavenly state and if you look at Buddhist cosmology, then you see there's a wide range of what's going on in heavenly realms. But he was wanting us to, when we reflect on this, when we reflect on the devas, he's recommends, he recommends that we think about our own virtue and our own generosity, our own wisdom, and our own learning. And the, those that these are the qualities that are are in such a person to be reborn in heaven. And so reflecting on that, reflecting on our own good qualities helps to lift us up. It lifts up our heart. And a lot of times we're conditioned to reflect the majority of the time on the things that we aren't doing so well, reflecting on our mistakes and our faults. And of course we want to acknowledge those and um, not feel bad about them, but feel the urgency or the um, encouragement to um, develop skill around those. But the real focus is on what lifts up the heart and encourages us. 
rather than kind of put us put us down. So he he's giving Upali this step by step Dhamma talk giving ethical conduct in heaven. And then the Buddha explains the drawbacks of sensual pleasures. It says here in the text, he explains the drawbacks of sensual pleasures so sordid and corrupt and the benefit of renunciation. So when we look at the examples of corruption in the world, we see what's behind them, selfish desire desire for power, desire for money, desire for sexual gratification, you know, desire for feeling important, feeling in control, whatever those things are that cause us to, you know, take advantage of other people, um, you know, break precepts and in, in other places in the suttas, the Buddha will take it all the way through. This is the basis for war. This is the basis for all destruction. So we know that, you know, this is the way that Buddha talked about attachment to sensual pleasure, using the, the, the experience of the senses, including the mind as the, the, the thing that's going to help us feel happy, feel good, and how it doesn't fulfill that, it doesn't last. And so the benefits of renunciation, again, here we start to feel a different kind of enjoyment. So when we let things go, the feeling of peace and contentment, the feeling of happiness is really counterintuitive. It's like, you know, giving something that's hard to give. Sometimes they talk about Ajahn Ganha talking about everything, doing everything that we do as a gift. And he's, he also, the, the words that he uses refer to giving what's hard to give. And when we do that, something, something rises up in us. It's a, it's an uplift. So when we when we let go of what we're clinging to, we have this solid feeling. It's like we go beyond our desires and feel the the solidness and completeness of not having desires. So you know, Ajahn Brahm will say it's not about the freedom. To fulfill our desires, it's about the freedom of not having desires. And that can be a little hard for, um, for us to take in. We have to try it. We have to see what it's like. And then we start to get the idea of what it is that's so inspiring, uplifting, and nourishing about that. It really isn't um, the way we imagine it to be deprivation, um, a feeling of lack. It's quite the opposite. And it says, when Upali's mind was ready, pliable, rid of hindrances, elated and confident. So the Buddha is really firing him up here, making him feel, you know, really tuned in. 
his mind is ready. And then he explains the special teaching of the Buddhas, which is the Four Noble Truths about suffering, the origin, the cessation, and the path. And really seeing how the, the difficulties we find in life, the painful parts, the part where we're feeling dissatisfied, you know, when that midlife or whenever um, reassessment or crisis hits us, or we start to wonder, you know, what's really worth doing in life? What is beyond this kind of just fulfilling the requirements of society? Then to see that it's actually our dissatisfaction that's going to point the way. How do I work with that? Where's the clinging? Where's the attachment? And if I can learn how to be with that as a, here's this idea of a direct experience where the Buddha talks about, this is how we know, this is how we know what's true. This is how we know what's actually real. How does that happen with suffering? How can I have the direct experience of what's arising in my own heart, in my own body and stay present with that? in a way that we get to know it. So some painful experience, maybe we lose our job, say, and we feel the fear, the worry, maybe the resentment. Um, and then we stay present with that, we feel it in the body. And there's this idea of feeling it all the way through the experience, so it's like, you're with it in a way of what am I really worried about? But the trick is it's not mental. It's not like all about reasoning and convincing ourselves and thinking about what the positive or whatever. It's also felt, the felt sense. The knowing, the knowing of something that lies deeper in our being that tells us that yes, this, this happens in life and it's okay. This happens in life and there's something else that's coming. And it's, it's, it's these underlying qualities that bring this stability, that this is what's worth developing in life these underlying, these qualities of wisdom and confidence based in virtue, based in that blameless living, based in generosity, based in the arising up of our own nobility. And then, you know, the Buddhist talks, the Buddha talks about that being present with our experience all the way through to the cessation of that painful feeling of that suffering. And I know that, you know, maybe every one of us knows this from direct experience in our life. How do you move through a process of suffering to happiness? And 
when we when we start to get the sense of what we do in our experience to facilitate that and to learn to bear with the circumstances we find ourselves in till we get to that place of having come all the way through it, never really fear it so much again. And we develop these skills and quality of mind that really support us anytime this arises. So he says, just a, and then in this case, just as a clean cloth rid of stains would properly absorb dye right there and then as Polly's listening, sitting in that very seat, the stainless immaculate vision of the Dhamma arose. So this is the, the view into the Dhamma. It's stream entry. This is the kind of code for entering the stream and how do they how does it appear everything that has a beginning has an end the direct experience of that brings joy and and at that moment upali saw attained understood and fathomed the dhamma so this happened while the buddha was talking to him and sometimes this still happens these days listening to a dhamma talk the person goes beyond doubt, beyond indecision. So it says here, he's became self-assured and independent of others, say knowing the Dhamma directly for oneself. And then the next thing is, he says, I have to go now. I have a lot of duties. I have a lot to do. The Buddha says, okay, go at your convenience. You can go whenever you want. <laughs> and it's like, from there, you live your life. Again, if you go take care of stuff, but you're never the same after that. And I know, I, I think something, you know, can you imagine being in the Buddha's presence as he's talking about these things? You know, there's probably a, a great energy that's happening that's, that's, you know, kind of like helping Upali along to really like experience this himself. And, and say, what do we do to put ourselves in that kind of um, space of being available to that understanding as we listen to the Dhamma, as we read the Buddha's words? And, and also, so, one of the points of talking through this is also to look at what's it like when the Buddha talks to someone who's already like so on board, you might say already, and he talks about the, the approach to training monastics. And of course, as you most of you know, that I I'm certain it wasn't just monastics. So in my own experience, getting closer and closer to the monastic sangha, I was you know, applying the same things in my life, in my lay life. Because in lay life, we can go um, extremely deep into the, tra the training, you might say, and the benefits of following the Buddha's path. 
And when, when the Buddha talks about the gradual training of monastics, it's got some more specific layers to it. He starts with virtue, keeping the Padimoka and guarding the senses so that we're not getting caught up in what we see here, taste, touch, smell, and think. And then he goes to eating with moderation and awareness and being being committed to wakefulness, to, to practicing meditation and purifying the mind of obstacles. And this is um, really um, dealing with the, the five hindrances, which I'm thinking that I might start teaching a sequence on that in these Saturday mornings, starting maybe next week. I don't know, I'll have to look at the calendar to see how it goes, but I think it might be good to pay some particular attention to each one. And then in in all of our activities, having mindfulness and awareness, really that that careful attention. And then the Buddha talks about living in seclusion, having time by ourselves, really, um, really being able to go deeper. Oh, actually, the five hindrances comes up next. Giving, med- giving that attention, giving up the desire for the world, giving up greed, hatred, and delusion. So it's it's um, giving up greed and hatred and you know the other hindrances and then developing the jhanas. And so this is also what we can do whether we're lay or monastic. So it's it's like those that first sequence of things that I talked about leading us to that very important kind of realization that everything arises ceases, that that really is the entry, the the door, um, the way we never fall back into being caught up in the world. And then there's the sequence of like, what do I do to really purify the mind, to really relieve, relieve myself of suffering completely? And those are the things that we do by our own will and volition. And then what happens as a result is the development of wisdom. That's what comes as a result. And we see the way things are, that we really um, don't ever again become a a victim of the circumstances that life brings. So I think that's kind of what I wanted to say. I'm interested in any questions or comments because usually it's the questions that bring out the, the nuances that are important to us. Any thoughts?
this has failed. So in addition to uh, the path the Buddha laid out, um, any tips or tricks to uh, get yourself to follow the path and what are the techniques you can use to get there? So you're thinking more in terms of like the motivation. What is it that's gonna like help me stay on the path? Oh, wait, yeah. What 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 are the or what else is gonna help us like want to embrace the path? Right. And I think that's why the Buddha started by talking about suffering. You know, it's and and it I really it is important to know that he wasn't just talking about out and out suffering, but satisfaction. You know, it's like what is this really for? What is this life about? You know, there's this, you know, success and then what? It's not really all that satisfying. So the repeated experience of that kind of thing is what really motivates us to search for something deeper. And then to reflect on those moments when we find it, like, oh, meditating, you know, instead of, you know, we, Maybe we start because, you know, people tell us it's a good thing to do, but then we start to feel what it feels like um, and and how it feels to do it regularly. And then when you get away from it, yeah, things aren't things aren't feeling as good and I'm not able to be as resilient and then I come back to it. But a lot of times I think one of the tips or tricks is to really reflect on our experience you know how is this going how does it feel that 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 question of how does it feel and really being with that is very helpful and another thing that's very very helpful is to have friends on the path i mean like the two of you talk to each other about how it's going and that really helps and having a larger community like we have, you know, and and now we can reach across the world and have have our um, friends on the path. So hearing about how it's how it unfolds in other people's experience, and then looking at our own experience, and yeah, and looking at well, what was it like before I knew about this? And how was it then to deal with the kinds of things that are coming up? And how does it feel right now as I'm dealing with whatever is coming up now? So those are some of the things that get us uh, started. It's very helpful to really look to people who have been on the path for a long time who can share how much it's changed their life and how beneficial it is has been for them and then we can try it out for ourselves i bet other people have their own kind of specifics about what helps you stay on the path yeah okay <clears throat> Did anybody hear anything new in this? I mean, this is pretty standard fare. Sometimes something hits us. Yeah, what did you hear? I didn't. I, I didn't know this uh, sequence. Oh. Yeah. 
I don't know if you can hear Phil, but he didn't know the sequence that, yeah. Yes, did you want to say something? Okay. Yes, Grace. Um, it was really refreshing for me to hear that it's okay not to ordain. <laughs> because I'm reading the suttas and there's a lot of pressure to ordain. <laughs> That's a very good point, Grace. I know the feeling. Um, you start reading, especially the way it's written in the the Theravada Pali version. I don't know, maybe it's the same in the, uh, it's probably the same in the comparative suttas, but you just keep seeing all this, you know, like this is what he taught to the monastics and this is what he taught to the monastics. And, and the truth is um, he also had many, um, lay disciples who were following the path and having incredible meditation and beautifully pure lives. And if you know, there are people that I know who, um, you know, I mean, you just want to be around them because there's, there's such lovely, you know, qualities and, and they're they're lay people, you know. It's it's totally okay. It's like so much that we can do um, in our life, and and be really good parents, and be really good friends to each other, and have a good relationship, and good partner, and you know, really join the the collection of human beings that are so admirable and have the virtues and the the beautiful qualities that are worth admiring and we all have the ability to do that to be that um, not for any gratification from the world but for our own um, joy and happiness i do have a follow-up question okay. um, in one of the recent suttas I read, so like somewhere in the mid-70s of the Majjhima Nikaya, um, the Buddha says that no householder can be enlightened. But I remember like you and Ayachitanada telling me that it's possible, like maybe really late in life, but you've told me that it's possible. Can you reconcile that for me? Yeah, I mean, I don't know where it says that exactly, but it's it might. So the 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 approach in the Theravada tradition is that lay people can become non-returners, but if they um, realize nibbana and become an arahant, then they're going to want to ordain immediately, um, or if they're really close to death, they'll pass away. It's kind of like either or, you know, <laughs> you're not going to want to live lay life if you really kind of like, you know, completely realize Nibbana. I think um, I can appreciate that, that we're really leaving the world behind at that point. Um, but it's clear in the suttas that there were lay lay followers of the Buddha who were non-returners. And, and the Buddha also talked about, you know, maybe at the time of death, you realize Nibbana and, and become an Arahant. Um, or he gives this whole sequence, or maybe 
in the interim between lifetimes, or maybe as you land on the next lifetime, or maybe shortly after. <laughs> so there's all these. The real point is, don't worry about it. <laughs> Just keep keep developing, and whatever um, happens in terms of your sort of monastic lay status is really irrelevant. Uh, I really can say that there's there's immeasurable potential in regard to awakening as a layperson. And there's also something to the support that's given to our path and practice by being a monastic. But we all have different karma. And it's in in it's we all have different situations and different conditioning and we need to use what we've got and just go. Like Ajahn Mahabua would say, is scramble up the mountain, is take what you've got and go for it. <laughs> Don't let any of those concepts get in the way. Um, you're a beautiful being already. And there's so much an open field for development of those qualities. Thank you. You're welcome. Did Deepama Deepa ordain? No, I don't believe so. I think she remained a lay person all her life. And there are, there's just many examples in the suttas too. Um, it's good not to get too caught up in these formulas, even though we use them, to not think that it's, you know, like we have to rigidly, we're rigidly going to follow some kind of um, system like that. Uh, just, you know, like when we have realizations and see truth, it's never quite like it's described or quite like we um, uh, conceive of it. So it's more important to encourage the, the enthusiasm and the confidence in yourself than to think, oh, what are the limitations? Don't worry about those. Yes, Patty? Um, yeah, uh, in talking about some of the suttas and always speaking to the monastics, um, I've been, it's always been really a very tender thing to think about Anatapindika on his deathbed asking for teachings and Sariputta gives him this teaching and he says why has no one ever taught me this and you know there were he was an incredible incredible follower and devoted to the buddha and you know you're just kind of going, wow um but we did get to hear it. We got to hear all of this. And a couple of things that I did hear in your your reflection this morning was uh, not new, but a reminder to begin with generosity, to begin mm -hmm. with it, to begin with that open heart, mm -hmm. uh, which is 
just it's a reminder but it's a it is it's on the beam you know it's the focus it's where the boat's headed and all that stuff and and um i've not heard about the reference about heaven um so that was interesting um the focus of heaven is as uh Lampour talks about oftentimes and many others do it's to brighten the mind you know mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to give your virtues and to your to your goodness and um and we don't we don't i don't know i don't think i'm alone <laughs> just not thinking about that so thank you for those reminders that was very uh, very helpful and focused for for today for me thank you yeah you're welcome yeah what did you start out with there was something i was gonna like add to that was anatopendica oh anatopendica it's very good that we clear that up because um if you read the suttas not only does it act like it's only talking to monastics it acts like it's only talking to male monastics and that's obviously not really the reality because You'll find in various places references to the Buddha uh, having monks and nuns and laymen and laywomen and kings and their ministers and people who are, you know, um, every every class of of society and all of these these people coming to him constantly. And so this is this is it's really important to recognize uh, something that Paula actually brought up this morning from Ajahn Brahmali's teachings, where he talks about how when the Buddha was teaching these things, he knew that this was going to come down through the ages. He knew that there would be people like us listening and, and hearing this Dhamma. He knew that this was for everyone and he intended it for everyone. And he said, I wouldn't be teaching this if you couldn't do it. He taught men and women. He taught lay people and monastics. And that's kind of how you could divide up the whole world and include everyone. Well, now we're questioning gender. He would be, yeah, whatever gender. That doesn't matter to the spiritual development. What matters is that we're we're holding generosity and virtue as top priorities and we're actually purifying our lives and our minds and moving forward and and this is beautiful and we can feel the development in ourselves and we can see it in each other and when this uh i think it was I can't remember if it was Ajahn Brahmali or Bhantianalyo who talked about that particular sutta where Anatapindika says, why didn't I hear this before? And you start looking at where Anatapindika was involved and he's always busy. <laughs> like he was known in the, from what I understand is that Anatapindika is not really his name. It means like giver of food or so. He was involved feeding the poor and all this stuff before he ever met the Buddha. And he was very busy in his lay life. And there were other people like Chitta, the householder, who clearly had heard all these teachings. It wasn't like the Buddha was holding back. 
or that the monastics just have their own little special club and they just get to hear stuff and the lay people don't. It wasn't like that even then. But maybe Chitta, maybe Anantapindika just wasn't ready or he wasn't listening. He's like, yeah, I got to go now, you know. I got to go take care of a bunch of stuff, you know, and, and we've, I mean, I know I've had that experience and maybe any, all of us have, you know, there are times when there's part of the teaching that we just don't hear because we're just not ready. And then you read that sutta again, or you hear that teaching again. And then it's like, whoa, there's this depth to it that I didn't realize was there. So I think that's more the case because the Buddha even says at the end of his life, you know, I've never held back. This has been an open teaching. It's open. There's no inner circle in the Buddha's teachings. But he said um, at one point, you know, someone came and said, well, why do you spend more time teaching the monastics than you do the lay people? Or I don't know if that was it. There was some other like, why, you know, and he said, well, if you're a farmer and you have a really fertile field and you have a field that's kind of so-so, you know, it's sort of, you know, but not quite as good. And then you've got a field that's really terrible soil. Where do you put the best seeds? <laughs> and so it really is dependent upon how much we want to hear it and how fertile we make our soil in our, in ourselves. <clears throat> and so that's the, that's the real issue. And I'm glad I'm glad Anantapindika heard that at the end. Maybe that was the most powerful moment for him to get that. Because dying is a very powerful time. So that's the that's the analysis on on that. Yeah, thank you, Patty. Just a minute, Mayra. Let's go with Neil and don't let me forget you raised your hand. Um, yeah, so the question I had, I, I wanted to go look at the sutta and make sure I had it right. But the, those progressive steps, mm -hmm. um, three of them seem to be about action, um, generosity, you know, having generosity, um, non, um, what is it now? Da, 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 household of progressive steps, giving a virtue, you know, working on your, working on your precepts mm -hmm. and, um, the dealing with the dangers of sensual pleasure. Mm -hmm. the, the one that's kind of abstract to me is heaven. And, um, yeah. And, and and I'm just wondering, I mean, is it just, I mean, Patty mentioned it a little bit. Is it just mm -hmm. the idea of thinking about heaven? I mean, um, it feels like there's not, um, there isn't really a practice involved in that. And I wonder if you could speak a little more about heaven. In this yes, but I think you hit on something important because the Buddha, I think, was talking about it as a practice. And, you know, you know, what I think is what's what's happening in the suttas is probably a little like would be happening in at least the culture I grew up in, where a lot of people are aiming for heaven. I mean, I grew up in a pretty fundamentalist Christian area in the Midwest, and 
people like almost everybody went to church and almost everybody was pretty signed up on you know the the christian model of of going to heaven and being with jesus and from the buddha's perspective or the way he talks about things i think that's probably what's going to happen to most of those people that i grew up around if they're good if they're virtuous um that's probably exactly what's going to occur and so the buddha is probably dealing with a culture where people held heaven as a reality and he from his perspective he's he directly experienced other realms and and saw that that is that is an actual <laughs> excuse me actual an actual existence and he also said don't stop with that idea you know go all the way to the realization of nibbana because heaven isn't eternal it's going to come to an end and it's got its downside just like all the rest of samsara but the practice there is like patty was saying and you see that in other places in the suttas you know as uh, as a way to brighten the mind, as a way to remember that we have these qualities in ourselves and that we want to encourage those qualities, those beautiful qualities of virtue and generosity and kindness and compassion. And the Brahma Viharas is so the heaven realms are all about compassion and, and loving kindness and, you know, joy for what's good and equanimity. And this is this is what the Buddha also wanted to encourage. And right there at the end of what I was saying is like, okay, we do these things that are practices. And that one is to uplift the mind and encourage us. And we need encouragement. And, and we are taught to press ourselves down a lot of the time, um, undermine ourselves. And so we've got we've to counterbalance that. And right at the end, when I was saying, okay, those are the things we do for practices, and then there are the results that we can't control, that we can't make happen. We can't make insight happen. You know, it's not like Upali could sit there and say, oh, I'm going to enter the stream now. <laughs> That's on my agenda for today. <laughs> you know? well, that just doesn't work. So all of the practices are putting in the conditions, and then the results. What are the results? Insight, wisdom kindness, compassion, equanimity. You know, we can, we can, we can in a way kind of practice for that, but the real fulfillment of that comes by the natural process of awakening. Yeah, I, I, I think when you were first talking about it and you were talking about heaven, that thought did come to my mind that it has something to do with the the Brahma Viharas. Mm. And um, so I'm, uh, thank you for reminding me of that because that feels like uh, the practical side of, of what he's talking about there. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for the question, Neil. Okay, Ling. Thank you, Aya. I might have some silly questions. Um, it, um, so the first one, the generosity, I, I really resonate open heart, you know, giving and uplifting, love it. And for the my question, I have two questions. 
or cultivate virtue, I was wondering first, does practice meditation is cultivate, cultivate virtue? Um, and if it is, and then one of the you know, five precepts, um, you know, the, the third one is no lies. It's this years I've want to cultivate deep listening. But I've been thinking, how do I cultivate? Okay, not lie. I, I can reframe myself, but sometimes I find myself cannot listen deeply. I was thinking, how can I become deep listening? And I just have those questions today in my head. Mm -hmm. And if my son started talking to the things to me, I always mm -hmm. want to you know, add on, can I just slow down? And um, I, mm -hmm. I find that in tendency. But, and um, I, when you talk about virtue, I say, oh, how can I incorporate in my daily life? How do I cultivate? I do enjoy meditation. Does that help? Sorry, it's a silly, it's a modeling. No, no, it's okay, Ling. Um, it is good for us to uh, tease that apart a little bit. Um, so the, the practice of virtue helps support our meditation because when we um, have things that we've done that we feel bad about or we've harmed, harmed someone, that, that's going to have an, um, kind of a strangling effect on our meditation. So the the more we purify our conduct, the bet you know the more supportive that is of our meditation. And it does work the other way too. Like the more we meditate, the the more um, the more we reflect on how it feels when we keep precepts or we don't keep precepts, or particularly something like the fifth precept, alcohol and and drugs that alter our consciousness or for, through which we lose our mindfulness when we're meditating we can really get get more sensitive to how that affects us when we do when we engage in those things we really start to feel it more we see that that our our clarity mental clarity is affected our spiritual energy might say is affected and so it does kind of work both ways, but the but the truth is that if if our if our um, ethical conduct is is um, kind of um, soiled, it really keeps us from being able to go very deep in meditation. So it does, it, you know, it is like. Um, I don't want to say the these these parts of the path do interleave and and help each other, uh, but we have to pay attention to each of them and really do what we can to develop them. And in terms of listening, you know, if if we slow ourselves down, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> If we slow ourselves down and we really, I, I find that when, you know, when my son would be talking to me, and he's a real talker, it can go on for a while. If I pay attention to my breath and I'm really noticing my in-breath and out-breath and I'm listening really 
focused. There's like a meditation kind of effect that's happening in me as I'm listening. And I'm not thinking about what I'm going to say to him or any of that or anything else. And that that really helps us to become a deeper listener. And if he goes on for 20 minutes and then comes to an end, then I feel like I've been meditating. And I have, really. The focus on not just what he's saying, but also what he what he might be feeling, you know, kind of really, really taking in the whole experience of being present with him. And that's a, that's a beautiful experience for the listener as well as the person who's speaking. Thank you so much, Faya. Wonderful. Yeah, let, me, let me know how it goes. <laughs> yes. I would do right off this session. I promise <laughs> to play with him. Good. <laughs> Thank you, Ling. Thank you, Aya. Holly? Yeah, I mentioned uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I had a short bout of depression and uh, uh, rose out of that, mainly through looking for ways to give to others. So generosity is a big path for me. And my, I have a question, though. Um, some, do you sometimes go, go into a, a deep period of, uh, it could be contemplation, it could be depression um what i decided was not to analyze it hmm. or even put words to it and then as it lifted i didn't analyze it or put words to it it didn't seem like there were words it had to do in retrospect i think with a little shedding of selfing which was mm -hmm. great mm -hmm. um but it's like a, sometimes you just they're, they're not things to put words to it's more like you wait to see what shifted. Your comments, please. Thank you. I really appreciate that. It's true. Sometimes there are there are definitely different tools or approaches that we use when we're feeling suffering. Or, you know, I mean, this that depression you're describing, it's I'm just going to use the, the, the poly word is so much better, dukkha, that we understand that dukkha is not just suffering. It's it's any kind of down pulling or disrupting or negative mental states. It can be, you know, the whole range that doesn't feel quite right. You know, you know, dukkha. OK, so you've got an experience of dukkha happening and then we develop our tools we don't always just pull the hammer out and smash the living daylights out of it. You want to have other tools too. And sometimes you don't need to analyze it. You've experienced it how many times, you know, you know, and, and we don't have to put words to it. Words kind of put things in a box and rarefy, is that the right word? But it, it kind of strips away a lot of the nuance. You know, it's it's like <clears throat> you say tree and everybody's got an image of a tree in their head. <clears throat> Maybe it's like, the you know, like what a six six year old would draw. I don't know. But 
if you look at a tree, it's a totally different experience. If you really pay attention, there's no tree that's the same as another one. And our experiences are like that too. So as soon as we label things, which we're constantly doing, and one, one important aspect of meditation is dropping the labels, dropping the inner commentary to the degree that we can. And it it's that direct experience of what, what's happening. <clears throat> that's really what we learn from. And so you don't have to put, it's better, maybe better not to, but sometimes it's good to put the labels on it, contain it a bit. You know, sometimes it's important to analyze what's happening, you know, like what's really behind this, where did I first feel this way? You know, like, how do we go? How do we, how do we move through this felt experience, this actual experience so that we aren't stuck in it? Um, allowing the changes, allowing the waves to break over us or whatever it is. And so it, it's true that, you know, at this point, when you feel what you felt there, you knew you didn't need to try to excavate it and come to some kind of conclusion about it. And you knew you ne didn't need to put labels on it and kind of, you know, compartmentalize it. You knew that all you needed to do was really feel it and then bring in this generosity, shift away from. Is that what happened? You kind of shifted away from that? It was just more organic. It seemed like there was two strains going on. One was, oh, I think I'll go visit that old lady who had the ambulance visit, or I'll go visit the lady who wants help hanging her art. Mm -hmm. And I just know that that was a way to lift myself up and be... Mm -hmm of value to the world and I also knew it would shift my inner energies a little bit but the the story of what was going on deep inside me was that separate thing and about not excavating it and just I don't know I guess it was trusting that what was shifting would be positive if I handled the situation tenderly and with compassion mm -hmm. and that the, the gifts of it would 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 bear fruit mm -hmm. yeah I had to get a little underpressed to to get there, you know. I, I sort of had this underlying trust the whole time. Mm -hmm. I didn't put words to it. I, I find that the life is the richest moments in life. There aren't any words for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I would say having that confidence is part of was has been developed to through your experience of working with your mind. So as we in the beginning, we have to do whatever we can do to bring the mind around to, to being uplifted without suppressing the, the experience and the feelings. Because if we just suppress it, it's going to come back in funny ways. But if we can be present with it in a way that we are not pulled deeper into it, but are, you know, moving through it. But it, it's it's really like learning the learning about our own mind and developing this the intuitive sense, developing the 
the tools. And so it was a nice combination because you did take some action in a positive way too. And like you said, it's, it's like that kind of action of being generous of putting our attention on someone else who's having some dukkha that helps us get kind of out of ourselves. We're, we're in some way stepping back and, and experiencing what's happening rather than being real em, em, enveloped in it and pulled down by it. And that's important. The stepping back, as soon as we ask questions about what's happening there, or we see, like you said, you didn't analyze it. You didn't need to ask questions about it. You didn't need to put labels on it, but you did step back from it and go help the lady hanging her heart. And that's part of what puts the felt experience into perspective with less me in it, mine. Right? There's plenty of times I've given myself a Dhamma talk, usually walking on a trail. I have walks and they've been good. This was not the time for it. This mm -hmm. was the time just to trust. Yeah. Nice. Magical, I guess. Not really magical, but kind of magical. <laughs> thank yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Holly. Mira? Thanks. I'm just aware of the time. Um, I was just left curious about what was the teaching giving to An Anathapindika. I don't think I know the teaching. But I, there might not be time for that. I just want to acknowledge that as well. I think it was about, okay, you might have to help me with this, Patty. But I think I think it was about yeah. um, not attaching to the senses and the... Is that right? Was it the was it the sense bases, Patty? I think it was. Yeah, yeah, that it was a huge teaching. It was like yeah, sorry, Puta gave him the whole thing, <laughs> but it was about probably the senses and the sense objects. Is that <clears throat> sense bases, sense objects, sense consciousness, feeling that whole that whole is huge. <laughs> yeah, conglomeration. Yeah. Um, do you remember the sutta reference? Is it in the? No. It, it Mayor, do you have um, Bhante Analio's um, mindfully facing disease and death? It's in there. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's in there, and you can read it. And okay. and it was it was a a comprehensive teaching, but it you'll see it in different places in the suttas. Oh. Majjhima Nikaya 143. Okay. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Hey, thanks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The Buddha gives different teachings at, you know, like when people are kind of on their deathbed, you'll see different teachings, but it all, it all comes down to the same thing. The letting go of this false idea of self, of identity and letting go of clinging to that, which is going to fall apart. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. Well, thank you all. It's been lovely to do this from this lovely home in Milwaukee.
with these lovely people around. And um, yeah, so I, I hope you all have a good week.